Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 53, Palaces of Heavenly Wisdom, the Hecholot and Merkava traditions. Well, gentle listeners, all that time we've put in on ancient Jewish thought in the podcast so far is going to pay off in a big way in this episode. You might be thinking, no, but learning about apocalyptic has really given us some major insights into later esoteric traditions. True enough, gentle listeners, but in this episode, we're not looking at precursors to or ancestors of or essential ingredients in later esoteric traditions. In this episode, we are going to introduce the Hechelot texts, which are, well, that's the question. We've seen in the apocalyptic texts of the Second Temple period, a burgeoning tradition of angels and the different classes, stations, and hierarchies of angels. With the later Hechelot tradition, we learn how to summon and command these angels to do our bidding. This part of the tradition is often discussed in terms of angelic addressative magic. We've discussed the central theme found in many apocalypses of heavenly ascent, an otherworldly journey where the traveler learns divine secrets and sometimes learns the secrets of the earth as well, having such an elevated vantage point from which to view things down here. With the Hechelot tradition, we get the instructions for making a heavenly ascent. Only now, it's described as a descent. More on that anon. This side of the tradition has often been described as practical mysticism. Now, keen listeners will know that we at the Schwepp don't really find the term mysticism particularly useful, nor do we find the term magic an easy one to deal with. Nevertheless, when we hear about a Western tradition which has routinely been described as both magical and mystical, we sit up and pay strict attention. And this is especially true as we're starting our story in antiquity, but these texts were being copied and studied, and presumably also used ritually, right through the medieval period. So we shall be introducing in this episode not a long-dead Jewish mystical-magical tradition from antiquity, but the beginnings of a tradition that extends and keeps growing right through the Middle Ages at least, and informs the later tradition of Kabbalah, which is still going strong today. So let's begin to explore the Merkava and Hechelot traditions and see if we can draw some parameters in which to locate these texts, which, as we shall see, is anything but a straightforward task. But first, as a prelude, let's start with the Bible, or rather, with the ancient Hebrew texts, which we know as the Hebrew Bible. The Jews traditionally divide this into three sections, Torah, or teaching, prophets, and writings. So we're looking today at the book of Ezekiel, one of the prophets, the second part of the Tanakh. There is, of course, the usual disagreement over the dating of the book of Ezekiel, but Ezekiel presents himself as a prophet writing between 593 and 571 BCE, that is, in the Babylonian captivity. Unlike the Enoch tradition, however, scholars really do think that this is a very old text, or at least it has a core which goes back to the Babylonian captivity. So this is old stuff. This has been around a long time, even before Second Temple period. Now, open your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel 1. We are in Ezekiel's famous vision of the four living beings who are pretty trippy. They're mysterious beings all covered in flames and wings and eyes. And there's some wheels as well, 
which are pretty mysterious, wheels sort of rolling around by themselves, also covered in eyes. It's altogether a great vision. But our business is with Ezekiel 126. So if you will open your Bible and read with me. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of a throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round and about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upwards, and from the appearance of his loins even downwards. I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So here we have a vision of God sitting on his throne, and the whole thing is described in terms of lights, colors, fire, precious gemstones, and so on. Now let us turn, if you will, to Ezekiel 10, chapter 1, and we learn more about this throne. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them as it were a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spake unto the man clothed with linen, and said, Go in between the wheels, etc., etc. Wait a minute. Never mind about the man clothed in linen. What are these wheels? Yes, in Ezekiel 10, we are introduced to the wheeled throne of God, also known as the divine chariot. Characteristic of this chariot throne is its comparison to various precious stones, its four wheels, and a complex angelic host which surrounds it with various cherubim attached to each wheel and so forth. So there's actually angels in the wheels, or the wheels are angels, or the wheels are fire and they're also angels. It's all a bit visionary and difficult to pin down. This is God's celestial court, where he sits enthroned and presumably drives around his throne room on his sapphire chariot covered in angels. Nice. Now, taking these two pieces of prophetic visionary narrative together, adding in quite a bit of other material, both canonical and folkloric, Jews of the Second Temple period had a pretty clear idea of the heavenly throne. It had four wheels, God was seated on it, there were tons of angels around, and everything was blazing with fire and light and colors and gemstones and that sort of thing. So, whatever we are to make of the Hechelot and Merkava texts, everyone can agree that these visions from Ezekiel, along with other texts, set the scene for them. If you're going to travel to God's throne room, you can expect to see something like Ezekiel describes. And we've seen something not too dissimilar in the Book of Watchers from one Enoch, as attentive listeners may recall. Now, let's jump forward in time to the Rabbinic period. This, listeners will recall, is the period after the Second Temple has been destroyed by the Romans, and various groups of Jews in the Near East are beginning to compile the bodies of lore and juridical discussion known as the Talmuds, the Mishnah, and so forth. It's often thought that the Babylonian Talmud was more or less finished in very late antiquity, perhaps the 6th century, so quite late. But we can say for convenience that the rabbinic period begins with the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. As we shall see, some scholars want to push elements of the Hechelot traditions back into the second temple period, but basically we're looking at a rabbinic phenomenon. 
And indeed, as we noted in an earlier episode, rabbinic Judaism is where the real esoteric action is. The texts are often framed as teachings of famous rabbis who've been to the throne and are describing the different heavenly palaces that they saw on the way there or giving instructions on how to traverse them. So we have two main sources for the texts known as Hechelot texts. Firstly, there are about 47 medieval manuscripts of various longer works in various libraries. We also have a second major source, the Cairo Geniza. What is a Geniza? Well, Genizas are really cool. There is a Jewish idea that a scriptural text and even the Hebrew language in which such texts are written, and especially anything which has one of the names of God written on it in Hebrew, must be treated with the greatest respect. So this means, for example, that an old beat-up copy of the Torah, which has outlived its usefulness because someone spilled coffee on it, must be disposed of in a very special set way by authorized functionaries. You can't just put it in the recycling. It actually has to be buried with proper funeral rites. And this means that any written text at all in Hebrew, even a shopping list or whatever, which might possibly have a name of God on it or a scriptural word scribbled on it somewhere, had better be disposed of in the same way just to be on the safe side. So, when in doubt, you throw any written documents into the Geniza, which is like a holy wastebasket, only it's actually a giant hall chock full of documents. Now, in medieval Egypt, the Ben Ezra synagogue in Fustat in Cairo had a massive great Geniza that no one ever got around to disposing of, luckily for us, and it is chock full of priceless texts, which give us a window onto Jewish life in North Africa from 870 CE right up to the 19th century. Everything from the aforementioned shopping lists to scriptural texts to texts of addressative magic and visionary journeying, the Hechelot materials. So the Cairo Geniza fragments are a second huge horde of Hechelot materials, ensuring that we have a Hechelot of Hechelot. They are now safely kept in various European libraries to which they were looted in the colonial period. Sorry, uh, taken for safekeeping. Now, these are not Second Temple texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are medieval texts. But we are dealing with texts here that, insofar as they can be dated, go back in some of their contents to the so-called Tanaitic period of Rabbinic Judaism, basically the first two centuries CE. So just think 0 to 200 CE, and you won't be far off. This is very old stuff. The temple is destroyed in 70 CE, we'll recall, so we really can't call this Second Temple Judaism anymore, although it's not yet fully-fledged Rabbinic Judaism either, in that the Talmuds haven't been compiled yet. It's sort of like the proto-Rabbinic period. So we have, it is widely agreed, materials within the Hekelot texts which go back to the first centuries CE. More precise dating than this is almost impossible, and we'll see why now as we turn to the texts themselves. More generally, though, as we'll also see, the worldview of the authors has a lot of points in common with what we've seen in the apocalyptic literature. So it makes sense to introduce this stuff in the contexts of developments from Second Temple Judaism, even though these are later developments, mostly or all occurring after the destruction of the Second Temple and extending way into the future, into the Middle Ages. So, the Hechelot texts are a terrifying jumble. 
Peter Schaefer, who's undertaken, along with many hardworking colleagues, the gargantuan task of putting all the Hechelot fragments and longer texts into a standard edited edition, divides them into macroforms and microforms. So macroforms are the longer works, texts like the Hechelot Rabati or the Maase Merkava. These exist as larger works with at least some recognizable features that are relatively stable in the manuscript tradition. But there's so much swapping, shifting, changing, and interchanging in this textual tradition that the term microform was coined to describe the short sections of text which seem to be the only stable building blocks to this literature. A microform might be a particular set of adjurations to perform, to summon a particular angel, for example. This microform will appear at the end of macroform A in this manuscript, but in the middle of A in that manuscript, and it'll appear all by itself in that papyrus fragment, while over here it appears in a corrupt state along with six other magical microforms jumbled together. I'm just making this example up, but it's the sort of thing you find with the Hechelot texts all the time. See the bibliography to this episode for the editions of Schaefer at Al if you want to wrestle with the complexities of this literature in its primary form, or indeed if you want to summon some angels. And that brings us to what's in these texts. So we kind of have a when, we kind of know where we get our texts from, and we now know the go-to edition to read the text. But what makes a text hechelot? Hechelot means palaces in Hebrew. One of the characteristic preoccupations of these texts is with exploring the seven palaces, otherworldly realms, which have something to do with the seven heavens, but they're not regions of the sky in any straightforward way, as we shall see. The central and largest palace is God's heavenly throne room, which is the goal of the journey. Listeners here may recall Enoch's vision in the Book of Watchers, where he explores at least three such otherworldly palaces. The first is a fiery palace of some kind, then he swoons and falls over and has another vision of another fiery palace, and then he gets taken to the throne room where all the angels are and the big guy on the throne, which we recall has wheels. So if we take Ezekiel, then the much later Enoch, and now find ourselves in the rabbinic period, we can see perhaps the way this tradition is tending. So in our later Hechelot texts, this is also the basic model, only there are now a pretty standardized seven palaces, or heavens. And while there's plenty of descriptive narration of what these palaces are like in the Hechelot texts, there is also a concern with practical instructions on how to get there yourself. Through ascetic practices, special prayers, knowledge of the passwords needed to pass through the angelic guardians that sort of block the way, and so on and so forth. Okay. What's Merkava, then? Well, Merkava means chariot, as we've mentioned, and the divine chariot throne is the goal of the visionary quest in these texts. Now, unlike in the case of Apocalyptic, there hasn't been a really solid attempt to set the criteria for what the Hechelot or Merkava genre might be defined as, and the texts are actually far too messy for this really to work anyway. It's, it's hard enough with Apocalyptic, in which large-form texts tend to be relatively stable in their contents. So when older scholars like Sholem speak of Merkava mysticism, or more up-to-date writers like Davila or Lesses tend to speak of Hechelot texts, they're basically talking about the same stuff. 
we're actually not too concerned with this problem of categorization. What we do want to look at, though, is what's in these texts. And as long as it has to do with visionary journeying and ritual addressative practices aimed at summoning and controlling angels, because that's all really fascinating stuff, we are happy. So let those be our criteria for what we mean by hechelot texts, even though the term hechelot really refers to the palace stuff and not to the angel stuff, if taken literally. So, practical instructions for exploring the other worlds are one major preoccupation of these texts. As often with other world journeying, the terrain to be traversed tends to be paradoxical. So there are seven heavens. We might think, okay, these Jews have obviously picked up the seven planetary spheres of Hellenistic astronomy and mapped their journeying onto that celestial map. After all, that was the up-to-date scientific view of how the heavens were constructed. But the Hechelot texts are actually almost entirely devoid of celestial mapping. We don't, for example, get a palace of Mars or a palace of Venus or anything like that, the kind of thing we find in later astral magic traditions. And the Hechelot, the, the palaces or heavens, are also weirdly set up. We might expect that the outermost concentric sphere would be where God's throne room would be situated. And this would accord well with its being the largest of the palaces, right? Since an outermost shell of a concentric system is going to be the largest shell. But something very curious happened in the course of the development of these texts for a reason which absolutely no one can agree on. At some point, the texts stop talking about ascent to God's throne chariot and start talking about descending to the chariot. And God's throne chariot is described as being in the centermost palace or heaven. This descending as opposed to ascending thing has been a major source of speculation in scholarship on this material. But so far, a solid answer has pretty much eluded consensus. The Merkava mystic, so-called, is aiming to enter into God's presence with an emphasis on the chariot throne of God rather than on God himself. But to do this, he goes down. Now, Schwepp listeners will not be too concerned here. We know how tricky up and down can be in the other worlds. Still, isn't it interesting how the old theme of katabasis the descent into the underworld or into a cave in search of wisdom, which we saw in pre-Platonic Greek otherworld journeys, and which has a long history in the Near East, seems to have made a comeback here in some strange fashion. Now, along with this ascent or descent topos is a further theme that we find throughout these materials. The descender, let's just call him that, may be transformed into a being of fire and or an angelic being of some kind in the process of going through the palaces. Remember 3 Enoch, the text which, as we mentioned in episode 51, is often classed among the Hechelot texts, even though it's sort of an apocalypse? Indeed, it is known under the name Sefer Hechelot, the book of the palaces, in the manuscript tradition, although scholars have named it 3 Enoch. Now, this is a descriptive text rather than one giving instructions, although um, some fragments in the Cairo Geniza do actually include ritual material, which just gives us an example of how fluid um, the body of texts can be. In this text, Rabbi Ishmael ascends, and in this case it is an ascent, he ascends and meets Enoch, transformed into the angel Metatron. Metatron Enoch then imparts wisdom of various sorts to the rabbi and shows him around. Now, in some of the practical texts, 
this transformation into an angelic form is actually something that the descender is meant to be able to bring about through rituals of power. So, ascent and transformation. But there is a second major strand within these texts which has nothing to do with ascent or descent, or with visionary journeying, or with transformation into an angelic form, but rather with summoning and commanding angels here on earth. This material is often referred to as adjuration. An adjuration is a speech act which binds someone to do something. It's like swearing an oath on another's behalf. And it's a very big thing to do in magic. We saw that in the apocalyptic tradition, the heavenly hosts, whom earlier in the prophet Ezekiel are just the cherubim, with no proper names or anything like that, they're just a lot of faceless angels, this heavenly host in the apocalyptic tradition began to get names and personalities, and we start to meet Michael and Raphael and Uriel and all these different angels. In the Hechelot texts, this gets taken to the next level, and we have angels ogogo, but we find instructions for ritual practices aimed at summoning these specific angels and getting them to do your bidding. In other words, classic addressative magic. There is particular interest in two very striking angels. The first is Metatron, whom we've just mentioned. He appears a lot in Hechelot texts and related literature. And we shall have more to say about him in the course of the podcast, because he's a very interesting figure. As you can see from the picture from a Persian manuscript of the 13th century, which accompanies this episode, Metatron was also important in the Islamic tradition. He's often associated with Enoch, but not always. And in some texts, he takes on almost a semi-divine status as a kind of hypostasis of God's face. I know, crazy. So, more on him later. We'll come back to the Metatron tradition. Our second important angel in the Hechelot context is Sar Torah, the Lord of the Torah, or Lord of the Teaching. This angel is like the tutelary spirit of the Torah itself. And remember, in Rabbinic Judaism, the term Torah isn't narrowly defined as what we call the books of Moses. The Torah is just teaching. So sacred knowledge in general, this can be a huge and complex body of knowledge. The reason you summon this guy is so that he can teach you the ridiculously complex body of knowledge of Jewish lore, which allows a rabbi to be a rabbi. And so... Theoretically, he would also give you a sort of way to jump the queue to exercise the same kind of cultural authority as a rabbi exercises without having to put in all the years of hard study at the yeshiva. Now, this is important. An angel that teaches knowledge. Alert listeners and lovers of medieval Christian magic, or of the works of John Dee, will be pricking up their ears at this point. We will indeed see this theme again and again in a big way in the course of Western esoteric history, and very much in Christian and Islamic contexts as well as Jewish. If the angels know all, or if the angels know a lot more than we do anyway, why not skip all that hard work and get them to teach you the secrets of whatever body of knowledge you're interested in? We'll call this type of magic knowledge magic, and this is the first place that I have found it in the Western tradition. So hopefully someone will get in touch and correct me, but as far as I can tell, knowledge magic goes back to the Hechelot. Obviously, 
There is lots of older magic devoted to things like finding treasures or finding lost objects or gaining other types of knowledge, figuring out if your wife's having an affair, all this kind of stuff. But the Sartorum model of basically downloading a whole complex science through prayer rather than through years of study, that's what we mean by knowledge magic, and it seems to show up here first. Now, these are two main themes of what I take to be the Hechelot literature. Visionary journeying, along with angelic transformation, or transformation into a being of fire, which is probably meant to be the same thing, and angelic magic practices, some of which are knowledge magic. Two further tasks await us in this episode. Exploring the textual tradition a little bit more, and giving a rundown of what scholars have made of all this craziness. Sadly, there's no time to give a survey of even the main macroforms of this enormous textual tradition. So let's just take a quick look at the Hechelot Rabati, which is the closest thing there is to a main Hechelot text, because it would be a real pity to be looking at this stuff without getting a taste or a flavor of what the books are actually like. The Hechelot Rabati, the Greater Palaces, is the longest and also the most stable Hechelot macroform. It's a really complex text. It's full of hymns and other sort of devotional materials. And the cool thing about the hymns is that they are actually from the other world. They're meant to be songs either sung by the angels themselves in praise of God in the throne room, or you know, hanging out, or by the throne itself, because it's an all-singing, all-dancing throne chariot, or they are learned by humans who've made the ascent or descent to the throne Sometimes these are unnamed descenders of the past, or sometimes they are Rabbi Akiva in this text, who is one of the great spiritual heroes of early rabbinic Judaism. So however they came to be known, these are hymns from the beyond. So when you read these works, you're actually reading words that come from the divine realm. Lovers of Klezmer will be reminded of the uh, Nigunim. Uh, a Nigun is a type of Klezmer tune, which according to some schools of thought actually comes from the other world. So journeyers into trance states in the Hasidic tradition will sometimes come back and say, ah, I have a tune, and it's a new nigun, and this will enter the klezmer tradition, be played at lots of weddings, and be amazing, and these are tunes from the beyond. So the hymns are a major part of the Hechelot Rabati, and probably formed part of the practice of the descender. There are certain hymns designated to be sung in the presence of the chariot, for example. So these hymns have different purposes for different aspects of the descent. When we try to isolate the practical side of this tradition, most scholars will agree that some kind of singing or chanting of these holy materials will have been involved, and probably uh, quite a bit of singing or chanting. The text also gives descriptions of the seven heavenly palaces, and quite specific instructions for the descender who's going to traverse them. These instructions are narrated by a rabbi called Nehunia ben Hakana, who is speaking to a group of rabbinic sages in the text. So we're sort of being given a, a fly-on-the-wall view into his discourse to these other sages about how you do the descent to the throne. The instructions are really elaborate. You must invoke the angel Suriel, or Surya, his name uh, varies, Prince of the Presence, who is a major angelic power, 112 times, one time for each other angelic guardian you're going to meet on the way down to the chariot and then on the way back, which means I guess that there are 56 angels on the way there and the same 56 on the way back. There are also names for each of these guardians and you 
are expected to learn the magical seals, which are the passwords that you need to get past each angel. There are also tests to be passed to go from the sixth to the final seventh palace, and special recitations for the angels in the throne room itself. So when you take it all together, the various adjurations, seals, angelic names, and so forth present a very complex set of instructions for making this journey. This is not stuff for the casual practitioner. Performing the descent to the chariot will have required a lot of intense preparatory study. Now, these seals or passwords are interesting. We discussed the phenomenon in episode 6 with Daniel Ogden way back of nomina barbara or woces magicae. Magic words, basically. These are seemingly meaningless words, which have just magical power. We find such words across Western magical traditions, and one of the things about them is you don't know what they mean. They're nonsense on the face of it. As Professor Ogden noted, these words are often lifted from other cultures. So, as we shall see, much Greco-Roman and later non-Jewish magic will be full of Hebrew wokes magikai, or even pseudo-Hebrew words used in the same way. Words with ending in L, for example, for angel names that never appear in the Hebrew tradition. They're just sort of made up to sound Hebrew. Interestingly, the greater Hechelot, the text we're looking at now, has some wokes magikai that seem to have originated in Greek. So the borrowing can obviously go both ways. Now, the greater Hechelot also gives a description of the moral qualities of the type of person who can make this otherworldly journey to the throne. And it's very strict. No women, that goes without saying sadly. But of men, only the most rigorously upright Jews may attempt to attain this vision. And there are also physical and even chiromantic characteristics that are necessary. And it happens that this is our earliest chiromantic text. That is a text devoted to the features of the human hand and their mantic significance. Overall, the knowledge presented in the Hechelot Rabati, as in other Hechelot materials, is self-consciously esoteric. Only the elect of the elect need apply to descend to the chariot. The aforementioned difficulty of learning the ritual hymns and all the kind of complex ritual practice will also have played a role in sort of self-selecting the right sort of people, since not just any chancer was going to roll up and go visit God's throne room. You had to put in serious work beforehand. Often found appended to our text, the Hechelot Rabati, is another text known as the Sar Torah, named after the angel we mentioned earlier, the Lord of the Torah. This text, which has a lot of variants, is straight-up knowledge magic aimed at acquiring knowledge of the Torah, and it also occurs as a separate work, a standalone work. So that's all we have time to get into now, but the Hechelot Rabati contains many more riches, and I encourage listeners to get involved. There's an accessible English translation by Davila, mentioned in the bibliography to this episode. Now, there are several other main macroforms, but sadly we won't have time to get into them even in a cursory way. The Hechelot Zutarti, or Lesser Palaces, is another fairly long text. It consists of adjurational materials, a story of four Jewish sages who travel to Pardesh. This is an otherworldly realm often translated as paradise, but in this text, it's a dangerous place where asking the wrong questions will get you killed by the angelic guardians. So we have that story, and we have instructions for making the descent to the chariot. Now, Gershom Sholem thought the Hechelot Zutarti was the oldest Hechelot text we have, which some scholars would agree with, while others wouldn't. The Maase Merkava, 
the working of the chariot is another great text consisting of adjurations and rituals associated both with angels and with ascent along with descriptions of the heavenly realms there are three main recensions or three main versions of this text the sefer hecholot is our friend three enoch which we've mentioned earlier this is sort of an odd one out in that it's a narrative but it's you know sort of an apocalypse actually but its theme of human transformation into angelic form puts it in the same thought world as the hecholot stories and it deals with heavenly palaces agogo as well so those are a few of the major macro forms out there and to these can be added loads of fragmentary materials from the cairo geniza and we have a huge and complex group of texts now what are we to make of these texts this is where things get really interesting let's turn to a brief rundown of scholarly reception of this literature we start with the great scholar gershom sholem one of the fathers of the study of what has been called jewish mysticism and one of the great shapers of modern understandings of western esotericism and as we shall see some years down the line in the podcast when we cover eranos and modern esotericism sholem was himself a player of a sort in the modern western esotericist milieu to sholem goes much of the credit for putting this material on the scholarly map in the first place for sholem Merkava mysticism was a movement beginning in the late Second Temple period and gradually declining over time, though one which would later have a formative influence on the medieval Kabbalah. He locates its place of birth in Palestine and divides it into three main periods of development. Firstly, there are groupings of apocalyptic Jews, so the kind of Enochic Jews we were trying to locate historically in previous episodes. These are the sorts of people who are doing this stuff. They're gathering in small groups and speculating and possibly doing some mystical practices, followed by the Merkava speculations of known Mishnaic teachers, so a, a later group of writers, and finally, post-Talmudic uh, Merkava texts. Now, Sholem was a believer in mysticism, that is, in a particular modern take on what this term means, referring to a sort of practical pursuit of union or encounter with the divine please see episode 14 of the podcast for some discussion of the kinds of assumptions that sholem and others are working under when they talk about mysticism and while he notes that the hechelot materials do not result in a divine union or intimate encounter with the divine instead they culminate with a vision of god enthroned very much like a visitor to the royal court might expect to encounter the king surrounded by all his ministers and so forth so you don't expect like a private tete-a-tete although with luck you will end up stationed to the left of the chariot itself which is a certain place of great honor sholem nevertheless considered this material as having a core of genuine mysticism whatever that might mean exactly but one of the things it means is that sholem thought that the authors of these texts were certainly involved in having visions which they brought on through ascetic practices extended prayer sessions and hymnic chanting all the angel magic stuff and we should say here that there's much more angel magic material in the hechelot texts as a whole than there is ascent or descent to the merkava material so the majority of these texts actually are addressed to angel magic all this stuff sholem wants to consider later quote magical accretions to a core quote mystical tradition now if we don't assume that religions develop along some kind of evolutionary predetermined lines 
And we don't assume, for example, that magical thinking is a lower form of religious phenomenon and that mysticism is a higher form, and we don't assume that, then this model of a mystical core of Hechelot and Merkava speculations and practice with a kind of rubbishy magical overlay doesn't really make any sense. In fact, since the mystical side of things is based in ritual practices in our texts, notably fasting, lots of extended prayers with one's head stuck between one's knees, it's hard to even say why it isn't all to be considered magical. Like, you do this special ritual, stick your head between your knees, and this will happen. Of course, fasting and extended prayers with one's head stuck between one's knees might well make one prone to altered states of consciousness and to having visions. So that's why it's mystical, according to Sholem. But wait a minute. Fasting and prayers with one's head stuck between one's knees are also found in the context of summoning and commanding angels, too. So does that make that stuff mystical? Anyway, let's move on from Scholem. Another scholar, Grünewald, might be grouped with Scholem under the heading of scholars who want to find a mystical core in the Hechelot writings, and they have very strong ideas of what, what mystical means. As against this approach, Halperin, in several erudite works, laid out a deeply learned origin story for the Hechelot materials, which is not at all mystical, in which they were chiefly a form of literary expression based in exegesis of the Ezekiel passage we cited earlier, along with loads of other scriptural passages. All of this exegetical activity gets filtered through sermons given by Tanaitic rabbis. That's rabbis in the first two centuries CE in Palestine. Sermons which do not survive and are wholly hypothetical. So he's basically saying these guys were reading all this stuff and they came up with this new kind of form of literary expression based on some sermons that don't survive anymore. And that's the Hechelot material. Halperin even brings Oregon into our story, our favorite heretical church father, whom we shall be discussing with some gusto in future episodes. So he makes this incredibly complex and erudite story, but few scholars would accept Halperin's thesis lock, stock, and barrel nowadays. But what he did do was set scriptural exegesis on the table as a major part of what is going on in these texts. And many other scholars have picked up that ball and run with it. Few today would factor out the power that scriptural exegesis had on the making of the distinctive type of thought found in the Hechelot texts. So whatever else they were doing, they were definitely doing scriptural exegesis. So which is it? Mystical practice or scriptural exegesis? Well, the obvious point was made by Elliot Wolfson that this is a completely false dichotomy. If you have a set of ritual practices aimed at acquiring visions, let's say, of course they're going to be shaped by your exegetical tradition. And so are the visions themselves, when and if they arrive. No Jew of the classical period is going to have a vision of the Buddha, nor is a Buddhist going to have a vision of the Virgin Mary. Their visions are going to consist, at least in part, of what they expect to see when they have a vision. But this doesn't mean that they're not really having visions, or experiencing profoundly altered states of consciousness, or even transforming into angelic beings of fire, for that matter, since we don't really know what might be involved in transforming into an angelic being of fire. None of that is implied. Of course you can do these things and have an exegetical tradition. So, the exegesis versus mysticism dichotomy has been rightly demolished, as an either-or category, 
And now some scholars like Lessis and Davila have tried to get inside the visionary states these Merkava descenders were entering into and try to explain that stuff. This is always tricky territory in the study of religions because you never really know what goes on in someone else's head. Indeed, our own heads are pretty mysterious to us humans. Lessis has approached the ritual side of these texts as practices to be performed rather than as some kind of literary fictions or literary presentations, which is a very promising avenue and would seem kind of obvious if it weren't for the fact that many scholars seem to have been completely tone deaf to the practical side of this stuff staring at them off the page. Davila has attempted to construct a typology for the Merkava mystic. These people were shaman healers who made otherworldly journeys and returned with knowledge which was of benefit to their communities. Despite the history of abuse of the term shaman in the history of religions, Davila's model raises all kinds of interesting possibilities and is uh, certainly plausible in its general outlines, even if this or that detail turns out to be wrong historically or in need of nuancing. So that was a very quick and very stripped-down survey of some major approaches to the Hechelot materials up to the present day. And it should be clear that scholarly understanding of this stuff has really come a long way since Sholem's time. Starting from an artificial model of mysticism versus magic, we pass through a waterless desert of it's all just literary exegesis and come back out on the other side to a place where scholars are now talking about rituals and exegesis in the same breath and even using innovative theoretical models to try to get at what the experiential side of this exegetical ritual world might have been like. What might it have been like to descend to the chariot? And if you weren't going to descend to the chariot, what did you have to do exactly? These sorts of questions, which are the really interesting questions, as well as the really hard ones. Now, as a final note, before we say farewell to this episode, we should note that in Judaism, many of these practices are still alive in some form or another all over the world. So in a way, what it's like to descend to the chariot is not even an academic question. It's one you could actually, in theory, do a statistical survey on. But the problem here is that the esoteric Jews really are esoteric, and you can't just rock up the local Hasidic synagogue and interview folks about their descent to the chariot. So, listeners, over to you. The texts are out there, although fragmentary, and the bibliography to this episode will give you all the directions you need to find them. You'll need to learn Hebrew and probably some Aramaic, but that's easy. And if anyone does take us up on this invitation, enjoy the descent. Please let us know how it went, either by email or by angelic emissary, and we look forward to hearing from you. If we don't hear from you, we'll assume that you stayed esoteric. Esoteric.